0: Before you listen to this podcast, just a quick word on some special offers for PTO listeners. For a short time only, new $8 patrons can get a free one year print and digital subscription to Tribune magazine. New $5 patrons can get 50% off a Tribune subscription, and all new $3 patrons of the show can get 70% off any ebook from Repeater Books. Their many excellent titles include Stolen How to Save the World from Financialization by Grace Blakely, K Punk The Collected and Unpublished Writings of Mark Fisher, and Leslie Ann Brown's decolonial daughter, Letters from a Black Woman to Her European Son. Go to patreoncom slash other to sign up.
1: The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. The men beat on
0: their drum. Welcome to Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. My name is Alex Doherty and my guest today is Holly Buck. We spoke about her new book, After Geoengineering, Climate Tragedy, Repair and Restoration. Holly writes on emerging technologies in the Anthropocene. Her work has appeared in journals such as Development and Change, Climatic Change and Global Sustainability, amongst others. Since 2009, she's been researching the social dimensions of geoengineering as a faculty fellow with the Forum for Climate Engineering Assessment in Washington, D.C., as a member of the Steering Committee for the International Climate Engineering Conference in Berlin, and as a doctoral researcher at Cornell University, from which she holds a PhD in Development Sociology. So in the introduction to the book, you point out that one of the consequences of air pollution is actually to mitigate temperature rises and that if we embarked upon total removal of aerosols, that could actually increase temperature by by a half degree to, to one degree Celsius. And that seems to point to the idea that the notion that geoengineering, whether for good or ill, is is a project simply for the, for the future, isn't quite accurate and that we're already engaged in geoengineering in some sense, albeit not necessarily with a great deal of intentionality. Do you think that the, the lack of recognition of, of, of that fact, that there's not such a clear distinction between before and after geoengineering, contributes to, to, to the fear and, and, and horror even that the idea of geoengineering provokes in many people and, and in particular people on the left?
1: Yeah, I think that most people don't realize the extent of the existing changes, both in terms of climate change and in terms of what aerosols are doing already in the troposphere, so that the air that we're breathing, right, there's this huge drive to reduce aerosol pollution because of all the public health impacts, which is wonderful. And people don't realize that those aerosols are also essentially cooling the climate a bit. But the definition of geoengineering that most people use hinges on two things. One is scale, so planetary scale, and the other is intentionality. So geoengineering engineering by definition is an intentional project, which is what makes it different than simply the air pollution we have every day.
0: Do you think there's also, in terms of popular consciousness, do you think that the primary technique of geoengineering that people think about is in terms of of solar geoengineering, various methods of increasing the albedo of the Earth and and reflecting more more sunlight back into space?
1: I think that that's kind of the resonance the term has right now, although what's really more relevant is large-scale carbon removal. And I say that's more relevant because so many jurisdictions, including California where I live, have committed to net zero targets that imply pretty large removals of emissions. And so that's kind of already in the works, on a implying a pretty vast scale.
0: And so when, when you use the term geoengineering, what does that encompass in terms of, of, of the different techniques of geoengineering the Earth?
1: Yeah, I use geoengineering to describe both sunlight blocking methods and carbon removal methods, but I actually don't tend to use the term that much in my own public talks or or research because it's kind of an awkward umbrella term. It's really combining a couple things that work in pretty different ways, even though they both share a goal of cooling the climate, very different mechanisms, very different impacts. And so I think a term like climate intervention, which is what the U.S. National Academies of Sciences has chosen, is a bit more accurate in terms of describing what humans could actually do. Most people who work on climate engineering understand that they can't engineer the climate system the best we can do is some kind of intervention into it and observe the results and try to improve that intervention, but it's such a complex system that a word like engineering really isn't accurate.
0: That notion of intervention, I suppose, points to, as you say in the book, thinking of geoengineering more as a a verb than a noun, right?
1: Yeah, I really think of it as a collection of practices that have to be maintained over time and learned and adjusted. And I also think of it in terms of infrastructure which also has a very long temporal duration.
0: Going back to the the fear that, in, in particular, people on the left feel regarding geoengineering, and not so much the case now, but it's not that long ago when the notion of, of geoengineering, to me, I, you know, I just thought of it entirely in terms of being a dodge used by petroleum companies to put off the date when they would have to make a serious reckoning with reductions in emissions, or I thought about it in terms of you know potentially quite dire consequences if if geoengineering is deployed in 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 ways that are not properly thought through. And clearly, your book is not a straightforward advocacy of all of these technologies. uh, And there are some technologies you're more sceptical about than others, in particular solar solar geoengineering. But why do you think that kind of perhaps slightly knee-jerk response that there is, particularly on the left, needs to be somewhat more nuanced than it is?
1: Well, to be clear, I think that what you just described, are probably the most likely scenarios, I think. (laughs) We're very very well poised for the petroleum industry to view carbon capture and utilization, carbon capture and storage as ways to buy some further years of legitimacy for the fossil fuel industry. And so, recognizing that, that that's the most likely case, but also holding up that You know, we probably actually do need to employ some of these technologies for the safest climate, the most stable climate we can have at this point, because so much warming is locked into the system already, because climate change has disproportionate impacts all around the world. If we have the capacity to put some of that carbon underground using technologies like direct air capture... I think there's a moral imperative to to think about doing that and to think about doing it in a way that doesn't just go to profit companies that already have been profiting from this disaster i'm not saying that those knee-jerk reactions are are wrong it's more of a yes and we're in this situation so let's think about some alternatives
0: and, I mean, in, in, in terms of those alternatives, I mean, you talk about in the book the so-called natural solutions to removing carbon from, from the atmosphere. C- could you talk a little bit about those techniques and, and why you think that although it might seem desirable, and it certainly does intuitively seem desirable to pursue technologies which, which would appear to have less negative side effects, why you think those techniques simply on their own won't be enough?
1: Yeah, I think we should definitely be pursuing natural climate solutions. I just don't think we can rely on them as the only form of climate response. And there's a few different reasons for that. One is just the capacity of these techniques versus the scale of current emissions. So current emissions right now are about 40 gigatons of CO2 a year, 50 if you include other greenhouse gases. It's, I mean, a gigaton is a billion tons. It's really hard to imagine 50 billion tons, right? But it's it's really a lot. And the capacity of natural systems to absorb all that implies a huge amount of land for afforestation, which there's a lot of debates around that. Some people have calculated, you know, what if you reduced meat intake globally by something like 80 percent? that would free up a lot of grazing land for afforestation, which could be ideally true, but it's very hard to mandate something like meat consumption around the world, right? So I think that we do we can be idealistic about that eventually, but the timescales of this problem are pretty urgent. We really need to see a lot of action in the next decade. So I wouldn't really want to bet on that type of thing happening. The other thing that's really relevant is that these techniques, besides the extreme land demands for for natural climate solutions, they also plateau over time. So there's a total finite capacity of these sinks. Once you fill them up, then you have to keep on holding the carbon there. You can't just increase it year after year after year with on end what they can store. You can increase it for a couple decades and then you have a carbon sink that has to be maintained, which A, means that there's only so much these sinks can compensate for, and B, they're vulnerable to reversal, including from climate change itself. So both afforestation, you have forests vulnerable to increased wildfires, with soil carbon that's actually vulnerable to warming soils too. You can lose more soil carbon that way from climate change. So to me, it seems pretty risky to count on this as the only form of climate response.
0: In terms of the other responses, why in particular are you sceptical about your so-called solar geoengineering?
1: So the thing about solar geoengineering, which is blocking incoming sunlight, which is most typically... Modeled via injecting aerosols into the stratosphere, I should just explain it, this would require kind of a the size of a small air fleet, a small commercial airline of planes flying up into the stratosphere, planes that are specially designed for this purpose, emitting aerosol precursors of sulfur or some other substance like calcite scientists are looking into what substance might work the best with the least impacts on ozone. But these planes would be continually flying up there year on year. And these particles would spread all over the planet, hang out there for a year or so, and then eventually fall back to Earth. So it would be this kind of shield of particles that needs to be continually maintained that would reflect a percent or two of incoming sunlight back into space, which would have a whole global effect. So (laughs) I'm sure the listeners can think of reasons why they might be skeptical about that. The reasons I'm skeptical about it include, we don't understand a lot of the important things here, like the stratospheric chemistry. We don't understand the ecological responses of what happens to plants and other organisms with a world in which co2 is high but the the type of sunlight coming down is is different and we have to think about what the eventual end game is for that because it would be a pretty bad scenario to keep putting these particles into the stratosphere indefinitely without Removing CO2 and mitigate emissions. Because if that program of putting the particles up there was suddenly interrupted for some reason, then all the warming that was being suppressed would hit the earth at once in what's called a termination effect or a termination shock. And that's much more catastrophic than just the climate change you would have had, because at least with that climate change, different species have time to gradually adapt. And with this termination shock, it would just screw everything up, basically.
0: If solar geoengineering is, is, is not a path to go down, then th- the, what are the technologies aside from the so-called natural responses, which you described, um, afforestation and sequestration in, in soils through different forms of agriculture? W- what do you think are the techniques that we should be cautiously thinking about?
1: Well, to be clear, I do think that solar geoengineering is worth researching just to know more about it.
0: Is there a danger that by researching it that then that makes it more likely to go down the, the path you know that these technologies could for instance be deployed unilaterally by, by governments in a moment of, of you know a moment of extremists and so on?
1: Yeah, I think that is a danger, but I think that danger is there regardless. And so I'd re- what I'd rather see is a publicly funded public oversight, transparent research, program versus what the default might be, which would be a few elites with philanthropic or other sources of money just doing it in a less comprehensive way, basically. (laughs) Yeah. But aside from that, I think that we need a lot more research and thinking about large scale geological storage via bioenergy with carbon capture and sequestration or via direct air capture with Carbon capture and sequestration (CCS) for storing CO2 permanently underground.
0: And um, could you say something on 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 bioenergy and what exactly that that entails?
1: Yeah, I mean, it could entail a lot of different things. One thing that researchers in the state of California have really been looking at is waste streams. So, using both municipal, farm waste, and forestry waste and turning all of that into energy and then in, into um, gas and capturing out the, the CO2 from that and storing it underground. So, I mean, not, not using you know, grown for purpose feedstocks or ethanol, but actually having a waste management system that is a negative emission system. I think that those are some promising versions of this technology. It's often pointed
0: out that people struggle just to to properly think about climate change and and to deal with the, the abstraction of it. And when we talk about this, the, the scale and, and the numbers, there's this weird sort of combination of where we're talking about a couple of degrees of warming, and as you say, we're also talking about gigatons of CO2 being added to the atmosphere. And one of the things I thought was interesting about the book was you make this point that although you, you often hear it described as a kind of inherent problem of, of, of climate change, and that it's sort of inherent to human beings that we just kind of struggle to think at this level of, level of difficulty and abstraction, but you argue that that's actually a consequence of our ed- educational system system and the kind of economy that it's geared to. Could you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, well, I'm thinking about that you know as an educator and somebody that teaches college students and just observing that it's not just with climate change, it's really with big numbers where if you you say you know the defense budget in the US is 500 billion or you know we spent 780 billion bailing out these banks. Or a negative emissions system in California could cost $8 a year. It's like people have no context, really, for thinking about those big numbers, whether it's with climate or finances or other things. And it's actually just the capacity that you can pretty quickly develop with practicing it and being exposed to. Big numbers a lot, but it's just something that, for whatever reason, our educational system on the primary level has not equipped us with.
0: And when you say it's quite simple, do, do you mean that if if you're encountering a lot of big numbers, you know, you, you you have an understanding of of say what it costs to build a dam in the United States or something like this? That over time, those numbers acquire some kind of meaning to you. Because I think you know, my experience is very much that above a certain number, everything seems the same. It's kind of hard to recognize, you know, you know, the significance of of an extra couple hundred million or a few billion.
1: Yeah, I think it's just the question of practicing it and paying attention to it, which can be learned in schools if our system was doing that.
0: I mean, in terms of bioenergy, I mean, you say in the book that it's actually quite hard to grow biofuels in a a carbon neutral way. And one of the reasons for this is that our commodity chains are designed for low cost to be you know just to be sort of to, to get things moved quickly and cheaply rather than for low carbon use and so you could have carbon capture and sequestration at a particular location and it might be carbon neutral there but once it's part of the commodity chains that we have it ceases to be carbon carbon neutral and you say that for for that technology to be, to really be you know carbon neutral carbon negative rather it would require, uh, as you put it, a totally different social logic. So, I mean, in your view, do these kind of techniques do they would they necessarily need a transition beyond capitalism, or are we talking perhaps merely, and you know, I say merely like it's a small thing and it's not, but merely a break with uh, with neoliberalism and perhaps a turn to a more interventionist uh, type of capitalism?
1: You know, my my take is that they really require a fundamental rethink. But I could see definitely having some good debates if like a a Green New Deal version of capitalism or a Keynesian version could pull off something like this. Either one of those is pretty far from where we are now. So people who are looking at the capacities of this, these aren't really thinking enough about the, the social dimensions. So I think that For something like a Green New Deal to work for the climate, it really has to work for people first in a visible way because the climate is invisible. So even if you're making some progress on that, there's not going to be an immediate feedback where people see it. So, you know, what you really need is what colleagues have called public luxury, visible infrastructure projects, things that are really making a difference in people's lives. And, and that's a really fundamental. (laughs) <laughs> large-scale transformation that I think goes beyond just reformed capitalism.
0: I see that point in terms of motivating people. On the other side of it, what are the ways that you think capitalism prevents the the deployment of useful technologies? Because I mean, you you talk in the book about how there's this split between people on the one hand who are tech utopians, breathlessly enthusiastic about technology, and seem to view capitalism as as just this, you know, this engine for for technological innovation. And then on the other side, you have people who have, as you describe, a good understanding of imperialism and capitalism's historical development, but who are extremely sceptical about technology. How do you see a a middle path between those positions?
1: I think so. We on the left just need more examples, more strategic thinking about Utilizing industrial technologies for progressive ends generally. I think that's really true when it comes to biofuels, for example. You can see how biofuels have not worked because of capitalism, because biofuel policy has been basically captured by the corn lobby, at least in the US. There's a ton of advanced biofuels that are technologically feasible and could make a pretty good difference, but they're not deployed because they're not you know competitive on the market i think that that's the same with industrial carbon capture and storage i think that the version we're most likely to see is this co2 enhanced oil recovery with claims that that's carbon neutral or carbon negative so fossil capitalism has really turned towards this to capture co2 inject it underground produce more oil call it cleaner cleaner fossil fuels or recyclable co- fossil fuels those aren't the only ways of doing biofuels or carbon capture and storage. There are other ways we can imagine it. But because we're many of us are reflexively not thinking that industrial technology is the answer, we're not even looking at articulating the alternatives.
0: Yeah. So it just becomes a kind of a, a politics of protest rather than something more more propositional.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: And so just on, the, on biofuels as well, I mean, you also describe the production of biofuels in the, in the global south and how quite devastating that's been to too many people.
1: Yeah, well, both biofuels and forest carbon, we have, you know, a few decades of projects that sounded like they were supposed to be green and win-win and so forth, and that have not been wins for communities of forest users or land users in the global south. And it's almost like there's this collective amnesia about all of that experience when you, when you go to some of these carbon dioxide removal discussions. It's just not connected with extremely recent history.
0: And is that just because of that myopic obsession just with the technology rather than thinking about the broader the broader social consequences?
1: I think that's part of it. I think the bigger thing is just the disciplinary fragmentation of how knowledge is made. So you have different communities of practice and expertise that aren't talking to each other.
0: Maybe this isn't, doesn't speak to that exactly, but you have this example in the book about the development of, of, of jet engines. And that if the people designing the jet engine didn't think about the fact that what they were going to be doing amongst the other things they were doing was making possible the global tourism industry... And I suppose one reaction to that would be to say, well, you know, that's just the nature of technological innovation. There's always unintended consequences. But it would be your view that perhaps that actually, although that may be a real tendency, it's it's accentuated by the lack of interdisciplinary thought in, 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 in the way our technological and educational systems function.
1: Yeah, and it's also just the lack of technology assessment in general. I think we could imagine systems and institutions. I mean, we used to have in the US an office of technology assessment back in the 70s. Um, There used to be more kind of thought about the implications. And I think that actually with the developments in artificial intelligence and surveillance capitalism technologies in the tech sector, you see kind of some calls for that to come back
0: one of the things you talk about as, as a lesson, I suppose, in the difficulties that developing new technologies might face. So you, you point to the example of, of the Kemergy movement of the 1930s and, and 40s. And, you know, that's probably not a word many people are familiar with. And I, I certainly wasn't. Could you explain what the, the Kemergy project was and, and why it failed?
1: Yeah, this was a really interesting movement in the mid-30s to basically a precursor of the bioeconomy to use farm waste and farm production for different products. Basically, any kind of product you could imagine from, you know, Henry Ford was trying to build a car out of soybeans, but biofuels were a big part of this too. Thinking about using pine trees for, for different products, papers, clothing, you name it. And it came up in the 30s and just had faded out kind of after World War II for for many reasons. One was that petroleum just became cheaper and, and more popular, even though the chemergists, many of them who were pretty powerful industrialists could see the problems with petroleum as a non-renewable resource from a design standpoint. They were thinking, why are we going to waste this whole storehouse of petroleum? We should be planning and conserving that for the generations rather than just burning it. And so they were looking at the development of the oil industry with alarm, thinking about how a farm industry and economy would be superior. But even with their connections in industry, couldn't, make this movement happen. And there were a number of reasons for that, besides the strength of the petroleum lobby who did actually go and attack them. It was a pretty technocratic movement. They didn't have a lot of everyday farmers on board. A lot of the farmers were feeling okay about some of the New Deal subsidies and other ways. They, they weren't so motivated by this goal of self-sufficiency, there are also personality conflicts among the leaders of the movement. So eventually it fell apart. Kind of one of those buzzwords. And I wonder if carbon removal might be in for the same kind of fate.
0: So, and, and, and this would kind of speak to the the fact that the successful deployment of these technologies will, will require popular support and, and, and buy-in from the communities and, and workers involved, right?
1: Yeah, and that buy-in isn't just a matter of having the right carbon price or the right financial incentives. There's also cultural factors too. I mean, if you're thinking about soil carbon, you're thinking about do farmers find it worth their time to sign up for these different platforms or programs that would monetize it? Do they see it as outsiders telling them how to farm as a loss of control over their own decisions? If you're talking about something like building out CO2 pipeline infrastructure, then are you thinking about The very recent experience of a lot of people with oil and gas pipelines and how that might inform people's reactions to CO2 pipelines. Yeah, there's a whole bunch of contexts for each of these techniques that often gets left out.
0: You've been listening to Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune Magazine. If you'd like to hear the extended version of today's interview, then please consider becoming a supporter of the show. You can get access to extended versions of PTO episodes from $3 a month, which is just over £2. Go to patreon.com forward slash poll theory other to sign up.